Greetings, parish orphans and retrogrades. Happy Friday. I am here with Mr. Timothy Flanders, my friend and cohort from last week's debate on the Mass of the Ages YouTube channel. And we're just going to be doing a little friendly debrief after the debate against each other, partly to show uh, you begin and end as friends when you do this the right way. Uh, there will be some other points we tend to that I think will we'll show the same, but Tim, Tim Philandis, how are you doing, man? Oh, doing very well. Jesus is king. How you doing, brother? Jesus is king. And, and therefore, I am, I'm so well. I'm so well. You know, man, I, one thing, let me just start out by saying this. One thing I, I have always liked a lot about you, Tim, aside from the fact that you're a good dude, you have good friends. I like your buddy Jeremiah a lot. Um, I like the project at Meaning of Catholic to attempt to, uh, let, me, let me start over, to authentically, sincerely attempt to uh, host debates and to be open-minded, which is not a strength of the right-wing Catholic approach to things. It's not. And it, 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 your, your approach is, is mine. So when, when they wanted me to do a, a friendly debate with you, I said, That'll be cool because what's needed is to not necessarily unite the clans or anything like that. I think that's, that's always um, relativistic. The clans will remain what they are, but it is important to, while acknowledging that, that there are probably going to be maintained differences between different camps within conservatism or, or Catholicism, um, even within traditional Catholicism, as people saw last week on the, the, the channel, the, the debate that you and I had. It's weird not to acknowledge that when you're debating someone that's this far away from you, that you ought to have that much more elbow room and sort of comfort to dialogue as friends than when you're debating a Protestant who's this far away from you or a secular conservative who's this far away from you or even a secular liberal who's, I, I can't go all the way across the room, that far away from you. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I was just talking with Eric Sammons, uh, 1 Peter 5, yesterday about how dialogue is basically misused or misrepresented, except when Catholics kind of do it to each other. Like when there's ca fellow Catholics, we're dialoguing or debating or whatever. We're both Catholics. We're both Orthodox. We're not uh, liberal heretics. But these are like we talked about in the in the debate. I mean, this is uh, I mean, I would consider your position an entirely licit and valid opinion um from vatican one you know there there can be these different opinions that that both exist in the church and it's not saying it's relative it's not saying like there is no truth it's just saying that the church hasn't clarified certain things and certain matters have not been definitively decided so in those areas we can actually disagree and, and debate certain things so these yeah. are like non-essentials that haven't been definitively resolved yet uh, you know, there's the famous controversy, De Auxiliis, actually, uh, after the Council of Trent, which is where um, these different schools of thought were debating over uh, Augustinianism, which was Jansenism. And the Pope actually said, hey, actually, we need to just stop debating. We're not even going to resolve this problem. Um, so th there exists these different schools of thought, different debates, different aspects of it. Um, and I, I definitely that's that's what we're trying to do. I mean, if Catholic is, is bringing together different schools of thought to continue the debate, which I think is a, a fundamental aspect of Christendom. 
Yeah, that, this, so that's one of the, maybe that should be the point we open up on in half a minute. Um, what you just said is until a, well, I mean, so, I mean, l- let me say this before, before I throw out my preliminary shout outs, so I've, I've shifted my endorsements and things like that from the end to the beginning of these videos, because it's bad practice to do it the way I've done for two years and to shout everyone out at the end. But I'll, I'll say this preliminarily. I think the cha- I think you're right about the way you you characterize meaning of Catholic. That's what I what I what I like about your channel and what I like a, a, about you. About you know if I can be autobiographical for half a minute, what is the, the, the people that watch Rules for Retrogrades, the retrogrades and parish orphans out there, and on, on the one hand, on the affirmative end, and then on the head scratching end. Uh, the other other tradition, other types of Catholic traditionalist, the more mainstream Catholic traditionalist, which is supposed to be like a contradiction in terms. What they note about me and my channel is that, <clears throat> and I think it makes it uncomfortable for for these folks. It's it's very comfortable for those that that note it and love it, but it's uncomfortable for those who are more traditional traditionalists, more typical traditionalists. Is, that like I'm I'm representing a point of view which um, is traditional traditionalist, and yet uh, is is finding um, theoretical or even real and practical holes in the argument. And so I'm saying like, look, I, I know you guys have this echo chamber that's been happening a long time, but there's actually room for a non-normy other position in here, right? And that's that's what my Vatican II book is going to be. That's also the position on say, what have I been saying since I was, you know, co-host on Taylor Marshall's channel was literally traditionalists. Trust me, take it from me. You have more problems. We have more problems. I'll even use the, the we in here, the Royal we, we have more problems theoretically with Vatican one than Vatican two. And if anything, that was really on full display when, when Tim, you and I, Debated, and everyone was like, "What the hell's what the hell's he talking about? What, what how is that? Blah blah blah." I, you know, all these people that are a lot of them are Catholic traditionalists, but are really new to Catholicism or traditionalism. A lot of these people in the audience that are listening have been Catholic for under two years. That's that's just the fact of it. And so, a lot of them don't have the technical training to you know to sort some of this stuff out. So it's important to say, like, look, I know you hear Vatican II, Vatican II, Vatican II, but. What we're mainly debating when we're talking about ultra vires, you know, papal, papal bulls like quo primum, abrogability by, by popes, it's all Vatican I stuff. And I, I, at the very least, I think that was on full display when you and I discussed things. So people are literally like a lot of folks out there that, that, that have been hearing me for two, two to three years now are like, this is interesting. Like, what is this guy? I don't have the categories for this guy, like Vatican one, I've never heard Vatican one's bad. I was quoting the council of Trent, which gives really a plenary type of power to the Pope. I, I I've never heard council of Trent's bad. Tridentine's good. That's, that's what we traditionalists are supposed to like. So when, when I do a deep dive, you know, and I've, I've been going to the Latin mass for 15 years, right? Since just before some more pontificum, I've been going longer than Almost anybody out here talking about it on the internet, aside from, you know, maybe SSPX people that went all through the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, like, wait, 
you're saying, you know, that the Pope could abrogate, but, but definitely should not. I think a lot of times when people listen to my channel, if they're scratching their heads, it's because I'm definitely not in any of the echo chambers. Right. Um, so I, I think that's, that's, uh, a challenge, but I think a strength posed that I'm, that I'm very proud of by, by this channel, because it's not like contrarianism for its own sake. It's just taking a, a philosophical or, or I guess, uh, lawyerly approach to the idea that there, there are more possible interpretations of Catholic tradition than just the normie one or the echo chamber traditionalist one. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. That That's like part of the, when we started Mean of Catholic, it was it was the uh, the motto in essential things unity and non-essential things liberty in all things charity and yep. the question of the modern epoch this is what i what i came to with my book is that the modern epoch start and i and i place it with the suppression suppression of the jesuits in 1773 in particular there's there has been a flip-flopping to a degree between different popes before vatican ii and Vatican I was problematic to a degree as well. There were things that Pius IX did, Leo XIII did, Pius X and Pius XI all did different things, which we can ascribe causality to our current crisis. Um, and so it's, it's really complex. And Vatican II is obviously a part of that, a big part of that. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of other factors uh, at play. And so it definitely seems to me like when you read, I mean, you read to the Summa and he's disputing with Maimonides. I mean, he's even disputed with these, these Muslims and he's disputing their works, reading their works, disputing with what they're saying. Um, I don't think the echo, I mean, I don't think the echo chamber is Catholic. Uh, we're not, that's not what it means to be Catholic. We need to really, uh, even if it's just sharpening our own viewpoint to deal with the other side of things or this other aspect of things, um, sharpening what we're saying challenging our viewpoint. Um, I certainly do agree that, um, you know, many, like you said, I mean, people are parish orphans, people are abused children. So we just want a simple answer to try to work out our salvation. Um, so that's understandable. But when we start to take that to excess in the sense of uh, only having one historical cause to this or that thing, uh, it's usually more complex than that in my experience. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get, let's get to that exact point. Your last three sentences there in one second. First, I want to remind everybody that my book, the case for patriarchy is now out and to go purchase it. You can purchase it on sophiapress.com or amazon.com. The case for patriarchy. It's inevitable. It's taking the country by storm. Uh, I'd also like you to, Tim, when is, how old is your most recent book? What's the title of that one? That one's not out yet, but God willing, in two weeks, I, I God willing. Oh, I thought it, I thought it was like a month. Uh, oh okay. yeah, it's it's uh, it's not it totally out yet, but it's called City of God versus City of Man. Yep, and it's it is an attempt to simplify the complexities, but also make complex the oversimplifications. So that's the attempt. <laughs> that's a, that's, a, that's a big. That's a big <laughs> what what, uh, what call out is it on pre order and what what. Um, what imprint is that on and everything like that? Where can people get it? Sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's just at our lady of victory press, which is our, our imprint at meaning of Catholic. Um, I would just go to meaning of slash contact. You can contact me. It'll be out on Amazon in the next two weeks, God willing. Um, but there's no pre-order, so it's not that fancy. 
Cool. Well, it sounds, sounds like good stuff. I thought it had come out last month. Anyway, so that's one way you can support uh, someone like Tim Flanders or Tim Gordon is by buying our books. And it's, it's a real form of support. Now, it's, it's a one-time one-off. And as any author will tell you, it's a great one-off, even though it's a small kind of show of support. And especially once you purchase it, reading it and commenting is a more meaningful show of support. But authors definitely appreciate it. Now, if you want a more rolling, um, you know, ongoing means of demonstrating your support for this program, go to patreon.com. Timothy J. Gordon. Uh, that's my Patreon page. That's the most direct way of supporting what, what we're doing here at Rules for Retrogrades. Now, we just created a new tier, right? The St. Luke Single Society, St. Luke Single Society, launched on St. Luke's feast day, which was Monday last, where people can meet each other, particularly parish orphans that already kind of know rather, rather definitively, but with a little bit of room for wiggle in there, what you are as a parish orphan and a retrograde. If you watch this program and you support this program, it means you understand the kind of person you are. And if you're single, it means you understand the kind of person you're looking for without over-defining it too much and saying, well, I, I must get someone that's already going to the TL. Maybe, maybe you're, a, you're a dude and you're looking for a young Catholic woman who you can kind of heroically convert to, to going to the Tridentine Latin mass. And then she'll always remember that her future husband did that when you started courting or something like that. So the parameters can be a bit over narrow. They can also be a bit over broad according to all the people that have ever been on Catholic match. So we're hoping that the St. Luke Singles Society will help people to meet in a golden mean way in terms of search criteria, you know, not over-specified, not under-specified, if you want to do that, it's the $20 Patreon tier. We just created that. And of course, I always acknowledge uh, all of you out there, particularly those who live in very blue states, to get to a red state, do so on realestateforlife.org. Many in my audience have taken me up on this, taken Real Estate for Life up on this. Contact them today. They will help to make this ginormous headache a little bit smaller and help you get to uh, a red state, get from the bluest of the blue to the reddest of the red, like I did going from California to Mississippi. I think I'm their second biggest, uh, whatever, whatever that would be, influencer uh, this year in the year 2021, even though I'm not their second biggest account because it's such a big part of the project here at Rules for Retrogrades. People find it especially, as they should, credible. Uh, maybe given by my witness. I even left. I wish I'd used Real Estate for Life. Anyway, go there, realestateforlife.org. It's all good stuff, man. Okay, so today I have Tim Flanders with me and we're talking about some of the substantive issues. So it, it, I'm definitely not allergic to um, it, it, it more glancing blows in a less openly forensic way, talking about in a maintained way, some of the, the things we disagree about, but we're finding some common ground here and we don't have to be uh, overly clinical about it. Tim, you had just mentioned um, the pedigree of modernism. And he, here's something I wanted to respond with. I, I agree with what you were saying. Um, I've long been, been telling our fellow traditionalists like, yo man, 
Vatican II is not the whole story. It's not like the be-all end-all of the way that, that modernism entered the church. And a lot of times they'll, they'll shout back at you and say, oh, no, that's wrong. It is. But half the time, I mean, over half the time, you're like, well, wait, but you subscribe to all these late 19th century popes that were saying that it had already begun. Yeah, I mean, this is what I remind them of. Well, Gregory the 16th, Leo the 13th, Pius the 10th, we're, we're saying that it was all around them. This is the whole um, raison d'etre of the um, oath against modernism, for instance. It's the raison d'etre of a bunch of Leo the 13th's late pontifical actions. In, in his late pontificate, he just took all these actions that were specifically oriented to responding to the sneak, the creep, the scope creep of uh, modernism within the church. So I'm like, that's that's a contradiction right there, right? That's that's 100 years before Vatican II. Vatican I, as you and I well debated the other day, has some really, really, really uh, ultramontane clauses particularly in Pistora Ternus, you know, it's paragraphs two, eight, and nine are troublesome. When I marshal these, by the way, in arguments like ours, I'm not rooting for them. This is another major theme I want to hit a little bit later. You know, I'm just marshalling them. This is, this is pure language. And um, Vatican I sounds quite ultramontane. That is an ecumenical council. So Vatican I is really problematic for, for trads because we don't want the liturgy to be in the hands of popes, though it did, I think it clearly is. Uh, Vatican II, I think its worst addendum is something like synodality. I think even in between Vatican I and II, what do we have? Globo Homo adding their guys, adding their priests to the worldwide presbyterate in the Catholic Church. And, and so that is all stuff that is ad extra. It's actually before chronologically and add extra to just Vatican II. So the problem is a lot of times I'm just really specific. And for an audience that's only, that's, you know, new to Catholicism or new to traditionalism, which is what most, you know, 80% of the people listening in are two, three years in. Um, they're like, this just, this isn't what I'm hearing on all these other channels. So rules for retrogrades is way outside of the echo chamber. It's like, I'm a hundred percent against the Novus Ordo. I want it turned around. And I, I say this, but it's not often enough because these people get kind of used to just hearing something a certain way. And it's like, look, I'm arguing that the Pope could abrogate. I'm not arguing that he should. I'm arguing against that he should. And people don't seem to understand that. Do you, do you note this in, in meaning of Cath that, that people want to stick with their relatively preset uh, categories, Tim? Yeah, certainly. I mean, like, like I said, so many, we're all abused children and we just want an answer so we can work out our salvation. So there, and, and we shouldn't have to, we, in a sense, we shouldn't have to go delve into all these complexities as Catholics. We should, we should just be lay people, you know, praying our rosaries and working on our sins. We shouldn't have to deal with that. So it's, it's, it's kind of overwhelming to try to figure out all these complex issues and try to figure out what happened. Um, so I would say, people who saw the church changing in 1965, 1970, 1975, um, they, something was not right. Something didn't add up. They tried to hold on to the faith as best they can. And many people were coming to different conclusions and different solutions to what was going on. Um, but this is also something that has been going on 
since the 18th century. Um, I mean, like I, I said, I, I would I would put this actually with Pope Clement the 14th when he suppressed the Jesuits back when they were the good guys. I mean, that was a papal act, which was a, a horrendous mistake. Yeah. And um, it suppressed the, the, the basically the, the people who were on the front lines of the gospel. And then all these secular powers were able to just seize their property and everything, which helped bring about the situation we're in in modernity. And the popes, for example, Pius VII, you know, he made this concordat with Napoleon, uh, yeah. which many this, this can really be you can trace a lot of our crisis back to this act at the concordat. So no, uh, Napoleon two, right? Is this Napoleon two? No, it's Napoleon one. This is okay, back no. when the uh, the the French clergy, some of them were schismatic and some of them were not. Pius the seventh right. just decided to guys let them all back in, not not make a, a a big fight. So there's always been this. On the one hand, there's been modernists in the church who are actually heretics. They want to actually change the faith, and then in the middle of them between between the modernists and like the monarchists, on the other hand, there's these, what we might call like the 19th century term liberal Catholics in the sense Mm -hmm. that they want to like Montalembert, uh, you know, Lord Acton, Mm -hmm. uh, people like that who are, they're not liberals in our sense in a modern epoch, but they're liberals in the sense that they, they, they're finding some way to uh, work with the liberal order created by the American French revolutions. Um, And this is, something that Jacques Maritain picks up. And so it's basically like Vatican II essentially is when the liberals in the church, liberal in the, in the, in the 19th century term of that uh, use of that term, they basically say, okay, we are going to try to work with the modern world in some sense, but there's always been that contingent of Catholics, even among the popes, like Leo the 13th is a great example of that. Um, so it's a little bit complex, obviously, because we're dealing with this modern epoch liberalism, and then there's different forms of liberalism, as they, obviously, as you have argued, uh, there's American liberalism and then there's French liberalism and there's other forms of it. And it's not all the same and it's not all totally evil. <laughs> so uh, it's complex and we're not, we're just living in this very complex period and everything's moving faster and faster and faster. And so it, it makes sense to just, we just want to latch onto something simple um, and that that's understandable. Um, but sometimes it can lead to excesses in terms of what we're arguing, I think. Yeah. Uh, liberalism, by the way, is one of the most underdefined. You know, I'm big on definitions, which is the way you have debates. Uh, you have to define terms at the beginning. That's just that's rule number one. Liberalism is a term that a lot of Catholic, a lot of new Catholics, a lot of new trads are allergic to defining. It just means any world, there are at least four liberalisms that are what you'd call right-wing liberalism. Neoliberalism is the kind of left of center, um, you know, t- late 20th century American uh, coinage that everyone associates with liberals versus conservatives. But there are at least four right-wing liberalisms that are written about in a really excellent book um, by, by some of the Austrians. And they're all distinguishable. And really all they have in common, that, that they have this in common with Roman Catholicism, they don't have everything in common with it, but they have this in common with it. It is a worldview that rejects voluntarism, right? Meaning liberalism is just liberty, which is a good thing. You know, Thomas Aquinas and the church are pro-liberty. And um, we reject someone like Luther or Calvin's voluntarism, which, which holds determinism that we don't actually have free will. 
that doesn't mean that the church endorses everything. But the point is that it underscores the need to define terms. And one of one of the, the things that I don't think I don't think I'd be doing myself any justice if I said that I thought that this is can lead to an occasional problem. Um, Tim, you just expressed it that way. The fact that we're such abused baggage holding parish orphans and retrogrades that we sometimes want to oversimplify as Catholic traditionalists, this can lead to problems. I think this always leads to the problem. Uh, I'm, I'm going to draw an analogy myself now. And I'm not picking on the Groypers. It was just, remember the Groyp movement? It was really big two, three years ago. I had a lot of students that were right-wing students when I was teaching high school that, that liked, liked you know, the Groypers and associated that way. You know, these are the students that liked what I was saying in class, generally speaking. I, I don't agree with them about everything, but they, these were the ones that were Gordon backers or high school students that, that supported what I said. We have a lot of Groypers in our audience, so I'm not picking on them. But there's anytime you have a populist movement, which is what the modern kind of TLM movement is. It's part of what we were debating last week, Tim. Um, there's a, a, a detectable, this is like a meta-narrative phenomenon. This happens at the level of meta-narrative. There's a question, you would see it with the Groypers two, three years ago, where it's like, with a, with a more open-minded Groyp, or maybe a card-carrying one, I would see this on the internet some, because I was on Taylor Marshall's channel, and there's a lot of over, overlap. There would be like a guy that's like, look, I'm, I'm, you know, I groip or whatever, but like, I'm just pushing back a little on this point. How much pushback can I give? And it's like a, a quantified thing. It's, can I push back 10 units? Can I push back 20 units, 30 units? Just, you know, within the realm of spirited debate between and among groipers before I get that caveman reply, you know, where I get ratioed on Twitter or on whatever. And, and it was funny because all of my students who associated with that, my, my more populist right wing um, students I taught, I'd always push them. I'm like, well, you got to push, man. You got to find out or else you're just being a coward. Right. I mean, like if you're really if you got your finger in the air and you're trying Everyone's a little curious because it's a funny phenomenon. But if you're trying over hard to ascertain how much pushback you, you can give before you get the caveman reply where you're treated like Zeno, you're treated like a, a foreigner, you're not one of us. And you really and this you allow this to affect the way that you're constructing your arguments, that you're constructing your cognitive schema or you're expressing your view of the world. Well, then you're just a coward, you know. And this happens a lot in Grapers were mainly 18, 19, 20, 21. This happens a lot with trad Catholics, particularly online. And it's a lot of the same group. A lot of them are young people that have been in the faith for a year or two years. And if you believe that online kind of right-wing Catholicism is representative, it's not. But if you believe over much that it is, then it can become one of these things. You'll, you'll note people, even online personalities kind of, trying to figure out how, how much can I push back and have my own unique position before I get the caveman reply? You know, people saying you're not one of us and this kind of stuff. I've never given a damn about it, but um, at the same time, I'm not contrarian. Sometimes it's just straight up. Right. I mean, how many times have I said this on my show? Like one of the, the populist kind of TLM backers, I'm a TLM supremacist. I'm like, I don't think this is really a matter of subjectivity. I don't really see any reasonable way that one could 
different. I've been to two or maybe three, uh, what we call unicorn Novus Ordos in my life. And even that's not as good as the TLM. So I am a, 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 a TLM supremacist and have been since right before Samorum Pontificum. It's just, I don't think it's clear. I don't think that's oversimplifying. I really don't. I just think it's, it's objectively better. And I, I would accuse someone of not really believing what they're saying if, they, if they're not a TLM supremacist. So I don't think that's oversimplifying. But now some of these issues where it's like, you know, the, the could-should dichotomy. This is, I, I, I was fearing, you know, it's cautioning you. It's him. I think you're, I think you're oversimplifying. I think we're, we're worrying too much about the caveman reply of kind of the, the Catholic hoi polloi, if you will. If we're not, if we don't distinguish more between could and should, and, and here's what I mean. Like when it comes to abrogating the TLM, I'm 100% against any Pope taking this action. Like I said this clearly, and a bunch of people still didn't understand it. These are, you know, people that are basically new to Catholicism or, or, or aren't really studied in it. They just watch online content. So let me say it again. No Pope should ever abrogate the TLM. No Pope should have made, according to Tim Gordon, no Pope should have made the Novus Ordo. 100%. I can say that with all of my being. I'm not just trying to sate the populist masses. This is 100% what I believe. But could is, a, is an altogether different thing. I mean, I just got back from four hours of driving. I had to drive out to New Orleans and back. I had my son in the car for this airport drop-off of my cousin. Could I have, you know, allowed the car to fly off the highway, uh, you know, the road going 90 miles an hour? Like, yes, that's in my agency. That was under my, my powers. I could have done that 100%. Should I have? 100% no. And that's what Biden could pack the court. He could. Should he do that? 100% no, but he 100% could with, with, he doesn't have the full potency. He'd need some support. Yeah, does from the, the Constitution Cong really allow him to do that, Timothy J. Gordon? I don't yeah, know about that. Yeah, no, the, the Constitution has no, it speaks none to the, the number of justices. I would hate it. I would be picketing in the streets. So your but, originalism can't get, can't get, uh, can't him, can't get that to be ultra virus? I, I, no. I thought for sure you'd be. Okay. All right. Well, well it's horrible. Well, I don't know again, much about that, I guess. Yeah, no, there's no constitutional creature. There's no requirement whatsoever that, that says anything about the, the you know, number of, of jurists on the bench. Now, I'm 100% against it, and we even avoided it under tyrant FDR, who I hate, um, because it it's, would be strongly unprecedented, and, and it, would, it would be bad, 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 and Biden's obviously just evil. But so this is another could should. I'm like, this is the last thing I want. It would be evil. It would be bad. But just to say he could or same thing with a bunch of the presidential powers. But people don't listen like that. People have I think that traditional Catholics have gotten so in their own right complacent and used to reasoning um, wishfully that it's like they just assume. And I, I was reading it in a bunch of the comments. They're 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 wishful thinkers, wishful reasoners that they think that because person A says this could happen, but I 100% think it should not, that, that that's some sort of secret sympathy for it. And that's just uneducated. That's, that's embarrassing. It's like if you and I are waiting for a jury deliberation for a verdict and me and you are rooting for the same guy, we really want, we want him to be found guilty because we're convinced that he's guilty. 
And you're like, well, Tim, what do you say? I'm like, I don't know, Tim. Well, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, you're like, is this a slam dunk? It's like, well, I'd love to tell you that it's a slam dunk, but this is really a 50 50 because here are the legal um, the theories at play. Here's kind of what went down at the trial. I could see that the jury going either way. He 100% could be found. The verdict could be the opposite of what we want, but it should be this. I'm with you as much as that, but it would be like getting mad at me for just saying, yeah, no, it could go the way we don't want. It could go the way we do want. This is just my best legal analysis here. And it, it would be as funny and short-sighted what I saw some people doing in the comments to be like, oh, you, you just are secretly rooting for it. It's like, no, this is my, you know, I don't know. Let's pretend this person murdered a close friend. I want him guilty. I'm just saying things could go idiotically and they, they have the capacity to go that way. You see what I mean? Yeah, uh, and this goes back to what you said about Vatican One. Vatican One was a was basically planned to be sort of like a Vatican Two in terms of there was a ton of documents to go over. They got one out, Dei Filius, uh, and then they uh, there was what Newman calls the tyrant majority took over yeah. the council. They hijacked the council, if you will. They it was a coup at the at Vatican One, just like there was at Vatican Two. And they forced the infallibility. They got that out just in time, right before the Franco-Prussian War broke out. And then they lost the support. They lost the council. The council was over. And so there's there's an incompleteness. And this is this is not to question the indefectibility of the church. It's just the reality of different ecumenical councils. We could say simpler things about Trent. We could say similar things about other councils. But um, we should be able to recognize, I think, that um, I would, like I said, I think your position and my position are both sort of licit, uh, valid, reasonable position based on Vatican I and Vatican II and the different sources. I don't think that it is, uh, has been entirely clarified. Um, so I think that we, we need to come back to the objective reality of the Catholic faith in the theological notes when we, when we identify this particular proposition has a certain degree of certainty because it has a certain degree of uh, clarification or definitiveness in the magisterial acts. And we can say this has totally been clarified, whereas this other thing is not entirely clear. Therefore, we're, we're, we're disputing it. Uh, there's a dubium here. So we, I think it's, it's reasonable for Catholics to say we have a dubium and we can disagree about it and we can uh, you know, strongly debate about it and we will. Um, but we need to recognize more objectively speaking, I think that there is a certain licitness to certain aspects of this question. It's a good point. I mean, I, I agree with that here. I think you'll agree with this too. You kept bringing up, Oh, you know, Tim, Tim, you like Cardinal Burke, which I do. And then he said a couple days after uh, Traditionis Custodis was published on July 16th, it was like the eight, 17th or 18th. He went on Arroyo's show and he, he, he supported, your view, which is that um, the TLM is non-abrogable. But here, here's what I, I'm saying. And I've, I've literally been trying to get him on my show. And a couple of times I thought I had him and it fell through because he got sick. He might come on my show yet, though. What I think you'd agree with this. I'm not exactly sure where you are on SSPX. But to me, his position, which is condemnatory of Lefebvre, right? But affirmative of the Lefebvreist position 
of, uh, you know, that the Latin mass is essentially non-abrogable and by essentially trying to abrogate it more or less at Vatican II, not officially, not hermetically abrogated, but for all intents and purposes, Vatican II did abrogate it within five years. To me, that's philosophically incoherent, right? Uh, like I, I, I'm on, I think you either have to have my point of view of things, right? Which is, you know, not, not Lefebvreist, on the, the character or the consecration or, you know, the society or the, uh, you know, you have to have my view of the abrogability of really any, any Latin right mass that does, doesn't go X far, or you have to have Lefevers. I don't think you can have, I, I don't, I don't see how, and this is what my SSPX uh, chapel attending friend, Joe also agrees. Like, I don't see how Burke holds this view that he, you know, that, that, um, that, SSPX is schismatic, but at the same time that it's ultra vires to do what essentially Paul VI was, was beginning to do. And, and Francis seems to be taking further steps. You see what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I would guess, I don't know what, what all of it goes into Burke's opinion, but I would guess that one would be against the SSPX if one is uh, critiquing specifically the consecration of 88 as an act, as a schismatic act, as, as uh, Ecclesia Dei says it is, uh, you could say, well, that particular thing was a schismatic act, even though I agree that they were right about the ultra vires thing. Or you could say, like Ratzinger said that year after the excommunication, he said that uh, in his address to Chile, um, he said that Lefebvre is talking about a different church and using this rhetoric that is basically schismatic and so he's kind of, even though Ratzinger, I, I, in my opinion, I certainly think that Ratzinger agreed that there was an ultra vires there. And that's what caused him to do what he did, apart from the SSPX. Um, but he he had he took issues with uh, with SSPX on other grounds, it seems. Um, so I, I would guess that that would probably be where he's coming from, um, because the SSPX is not only about the Latin mass, obviously, but they're they have they have other issues that they are arguing um so that would be my guess i don't know yeah it's a good guess but i just i think i think a lot of sspx would agree with me that that burke is uh in in philosophically incoherent territory because remember if they're right assuming they're right and this is not an area i'm i'm like 100 percent certain on that's why i don't talk about sspx as much as some people think I do, or, you know, I, I don't talk about it as much as they do at church militant. Cause I'm not a hundred percent certain. I'm just like, well, here, I'm going to err on the side of caution. But if it was ultra virus, here's, here's the causal connection, the, the connection, this is what we call the locus in quo of the idea that if it's ultra virus and, and Lefebvre was right. And, and the uh, TLM is non-abrogable. Well, then it does have implications for uh, Burke's uh, position on the other end. If it's ultra vires, then the novus ordo is not valid. You have to you have to have that 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 position is kind of what ties it all together, and then you get into this s storm. You know, since lots of people out there, uh, you know, they, they they can't they can't take it. You turn into an s storm if you acknowledge, okay, ultra vires action taken by pope and you know 
whatever it is, a post-conciliar concilium with Bunini and all that. Um, because none of us like the Novus Ordo here, but if it's actually, if it was actually ultra vira's action or set of actions, then the Novus Ordo would not be valid. Then all of a sudden, this ties in all these these issues together. So I that that's why that's just what that's what valid means. If it's ultra vira's, if you can't if you can't create a second form of a right, which let's face it, none of the other rights have a second form, <laughs> high and low, extraordinary, ordinary. It is fishy as hell, right? Like we all think that. We all think that. So it's fishy as hell to have two forms for this one, right? What? And if that was ultra virus, I've never claimed I'm 100% sure that that's wrong. I've said I'm 95% sure. If, if your side of, I think generally speaking, your side of things is right on this, then, then Burke just can't have that, that point of view. Cardinal Burke can't have that point of view, which splits between... SSPX affirmation or condemnation and uh, affirming the, the view uh, that the Novus Ordo is ultra virus because the Novus Ordo wouldn't be valid. And then all of a sudden it would create all these emergency conditions, which are the conditions for the possibility of quote unquote, licit disobedience, which is otherwise a contradiction in terms. You see what I mean? Yeah, I do. And th- this goes to your, your first critique in your opening statement, which is regarding the the nature of substance which i did not acknowledge and concede in the debate but i should that i think that you were hitting at a an imprecision on my part uh when i was talking with lofton because we were using the term substance loosely basically um just substance sort of colloquially not metaphysically and i think that's what you were getting at so i think you're making a good point there and it seems that there it would seem that if there is a distinction between the sacrament itself and the substance of the sacrament, obviously, if there is a distinction between that and the rite or the liturgy in terms of something. So in the sense that the Pope is then bound to two things, he's bound to the, the substance of the sacrament. He obviously cannot change the reality of the sacrament, because then that has to do with sacramental grace. The sacrament becomes invalid. He doesn't have authority to do that. Nobody's arguing that that's the case. But then if there is a, another distinction that the liturgy also contains something else, that the liturgy is not merely the sacrament, but the liturgy is something more than the, the, the sacrament, um, then the Pope could do something validly towards the substance of the sacrament, but something ultra vires regarding the liturgy itself, the mystery of the liturgy. Um, so that would be, I think, the distinction that would resolve the issue. Yeah, but you, uh, yeah, but definitely. Uh, now this, I never say I'm a hundred percent. I'm I'm a man of Socratic irony. So yeah, I was not I was not postulating. Definitely a hundred percent. I'm a hundred percent certain that just based on the idea from the perennial philosophy, Thomism. Yeah, the liturgy can't be a substance or else then the sacraments themselves, which are a part of it, wouldn't be capable of being a substance. And there, there are several other ways I could I could prove it besides. But, you know, with substantial form and prime matter and all that, it's like, well, the parts of the liturgy that are Thomistic substances are the sacraments. You know, the priest is a, is a separate substance of a rational, rational human nature. Um, yeah, I was just I was just taking issue with. Once we get into to talking about, and it's metaphysics, you know, where, where I'm really trained, 
I'm trained in metaphysics. I'm not trained in ecclesiology or anything like that. It's uh, two, two different worlds. But um, the, the types of change would be accidental change if we're talking about a substance, if we were to talk about the liturgy like it's a substance. And, and you were debating Michael Lofton, and he, he agreed with you that it was. So it wasn't, I wasn't even picking on you. I think he was even trying to defend it on, on Twitter. It's just, it's just not right. Uh, I'm a metaphysics guy. Um, so then you'd be dealing with either a, a change, because I was really trying to strike out what is this organic change, which everyone refuses to define. If, if you want to spit a, a hard definition, a, 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 a quiddity of organic change, then I, I'd, I'd love that. But you're, if it's substance, then you're stuck to just accidental change and substantial change. And guess what? The only way to for something to some substance to change is to come into existence and to go out of existence. And so every other change is one that we associate with something called perduring, which is an accidental change where the substance remains essentially the same. The quiddity remains the same without the accidents. And I understand like there, there are probably, uh, you know, three figures worth of people out there that, that even care about this stuff, but it is important. And that's also why I'm saying, you know, substance or not substance, we have to be able to define the changes. And there have been really, really, really more essential seeming more abrupt changes than even TLM de Novus Ordo. Now, Cameron and uh, Jake over at Mass of the Ages, they did their debate rehashing or debriefing. And they were saying, well, yeah, yeah, I guess we have to see that that um, organic change isn't ever defined by any of these people that keep using the metaphor, but, but definitely we can say, and there, there were these changes to the substance of the sacraments, right? The, the, the bread, the wine, these are big abrupt changes. But what Jake said is, but they're not arbitrary and capricious changes. And I'm like, look, I agree there. Yeah. Those, those changes had a, a much better reason for being, but that's not the test. I thought the test is organic. So if you have a definition for organic, I, I'd love to hear it. Because I, I I never got that in the debate, <laughs> or maybe yeah, you don't well, have it. But. Let's hash it out now. Um, I I mean I think that the bottom line is it goes back to what I tried to say is that the Pope is not bound to metaphysical things per se. He's bound to the tradition and the people, and he's a pastor. And so when we when we reduce it, that's what I I think is is inorganic. It's inorganic to reduce tradition to only a, a legal category or metaphysical category because tradition itself is a thing, but it's also a verb. And so the, the Pope is bound to tradition, the tradition. And that is the essence of organic development is that the organic development is something that organically grows with the passing of generations. So the organic development is something that grows slowly. It grows at the speed of a child becoming an adult. When you have something inorganic, by definition, it would be breaking the bonds between generations so that the younger generation is broken from the older generation. That is an inorganic thing because it is not growing with the nature of what tradition is. Tradition is the passing down for safekeeping. So when you alter things so drastically that there's a break with generations, that would be the general definition of, of inorganic. 
Yeah, but I mean, is it? A, I'm, I'm just ta- I'm just reasoning about it now. Is it a speed thing? Because I mean, look, the chalice was taken away like that. Now, there's I agree with Jake and Cameron, and probably you, that there okay, there was a better reason for being of taking away the chalice, changing you know, eleven to unleavened bread. That that mm-hmm. happened like that, and there might have been a better reason for that. Um, I'd have to look into it. There, there are probably better reasons for it than Bunini et al's reasons for, for, you know, making the Novus Ordo, reifying the Novus Ordo. But that's a different test. The organic test seems to be the way you just talked about it, the speed of the change. And there have been really speedy changes. I mean, Pius X's changes to the breviary were really, they happened overnight, right? So when I hear organic, I'm thinking, speed like you 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 compared it to uh, a child becoming an adult you know it happens slowly and and uh, uh, with room for with livable room for transmutation that is natural the organic seems to be a natural speed but then but then anytime anyone troubles to try to define it and I'll, I'll give them I'm not just doing gotcha it's a hard thing to do to define an analogy to the, define the quiddity of an analogy. And then all of a sudden, Jake and Cameron, who are kind of defending you on this point, are like, they're talking about arbitrary versus non-arbitrary, which is a that distinction is easier to define, right? An arbitrary change versus a non-arbitrary change, like taking the chalice away, or whatever that was, the Council of Constance. Um, yeah, there was a decent reason for that, but it still happened quickly. So that's that's, I guess, what I'm asking is, there have been big throughout throughout two thousand years. There have been huge, huge changes to liturgies, right? Um, and we 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 have whatever over twenty rites. So there's multiplicity. All of the rites have changed more or less. Some the Roman rite has changed a lot, a lot before you know uh, the Council of Trent. And yet, none of us, you or I, we all agree on this point: the motives at Vatican II and immediately after Vatican II. The motives are suspect, but that doesn't seem to be a speed thing. It seems to be a motive thing. What? Why did they make the changes? And that's just what I'm always saying is that's not spoken to by organic. Organic seems to be a rate of change thing. Does that, you know what I mean? Well, I, I mean, I would contest all of your historical examples just by quoting Joseph Ratzker, who says that 1969 has never been done in the history of the liturgy. So I, I think that all of your historical examples that you're bringing up, the bread, the wine, the filioque, whatever you want to bring up, I would contest all of those as, in or, as being inorganic or as abrupt as you say. Uh, and we would, we would need to take hours in every single case um, of those examples. Um, why? Why? Like filioque happened suddenly. It was theologically groundable, right? But it did happen. I mean, Charlemagne, was really the the basis for adding filioque. You can, I can see the Eastern Orthodox point of view in saying like, this is so sudden, this is so abrupt. I'm not saying I agree with it. Now you're going to get a bunch of people saying I'm Eastern Orthodox. People just can't handle it. I can see where they're coming from. It did happen abruptly, right? It wasn't immediately a part of uh, the the deposit. It, it was, you know, had to had to be papal action to make it part of the deposit. But it was Charlemagne was like the guy that started saying, let's add filioque. You know, council is the one that's like, this is a problem. Having the cup, people are misunderstanding, you know, two species, one species, the, the 
spurious necessity of two species like that happens suddenly even though yes that this is what i'm this is what i was talking about this is what jake and cameron said there were better reasons for those things than bunini et al ever dreamed of they had i think nothing but bad motives yeah like, i mean but, but but what you're you're comparing the filioque which is literally one word to changing 87 percent of the missile that's a big comparison i i would argue the filioque is entirely organic it exists in the, in the Syriac fathers, the Alexandrian fathers. It exists in the Latin fathers. It existed in the Latin liturgy, in the Quinconque Volt, and in the Veni Creator Spiritus for centuries before it was inserted into the Roman liturgy. And it also existed in the Frankist liturgy before that. So I know, it but was it was ratified at a Spanish council it, in 568. So it was there. It's theologically groundable. That's why I'm not orthodox. It, I, I, if the, that it's would theologically be groundable, entirely but organic, now. entirely long. It would take a, it took centuries to enter into the Roman liturgy. And even then it still fits the definition that I gave as organic because it did not break the generations. But who, who decides whether it breaks the generations? Cause like half of Christendom or something like that, 40% of Christendom felt that it did. It, it felt very abrupt from from anyone's perspective it felt sudden and i still don't i'm still not clear on whether or not we're defining now i'm not just trying to sandbag i'm still caught between is organic a a, a rate of change distinction or is and I, I think people out there just need this defined. i think the church needs to if it's going to continue to insist on the organic metaphor we should probably just get a better quiddity a real definition and use that as the as the uh touchstone but if this is the big touchstone that a bunch of you know our people traditionalists are going to use to sort the good from the bad the, the you know the the great from the small then we need better terms because it's it still sounds like a rate of change thing i'm not eastern orthodox but let's face it filioque together with the uh with the unleavened leaven distinction these were the two biggest theological reasons for you know the 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 first fracture in Christendom, the first big fat fracture in Christendom, and so it's they were wrong ultimately because they're groundable. That has to do with the quality of the reasons for making the change, not the speed of making the change. You see, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, I think Jake and Cameron are onto something when they're like, the quality of the reasoning about making a change as necessary. It's discipline. Necessary change or not necessary change? I, I quibble with Bunini and the Vatican II fathers because they're making a change that wasn't necessary. But I don't, I don't think that it was overly speedy. I don't think that's the problem with it. That's what I was saying the other day. Well, I mean, I, organic development, I would say, is analogous to development of doctrine. And Newman wrote a whole book on that to try to describe all the different notes of doctrinal development as opposed to evolution of doctrine, which would be modernism. And I think it's analogous as well, because there needs, there's a lot of different layers to organic development. I think speed is one aspect. Another aspect is something that Newman talks about in, in development is the uh, identity of the form identity or the identical nature of what came before and what, is now um, piety, the piety for tradition, which is the anathema from Nicaea 2 that I that I quoted. So an inorganic development is iconoclasm. It is an antiquarianism, which was condemned by Pius XII. 
it is an impiety for tradition. And we see these notes already in Concilium. We see these things in their fundamental principles, which they outlined. They outlined these principles. They said, here's what we're doing. We believe in this and this and this. And we're trying to suppress this because that's offensive to modern man. When you suppress the tradition because it's offensive to modern man, that would, eat, that would be inorganic because it's lacking in piety for the tradition. So, I mean, there needs to be a book written on it. And there was a book written on it, Elquin Reed, Organic Development of the Liturgy. And that's why I said that this is Joseph Ratzinger's commentary as he, he puts this book on the catechism's uh, definition that the Pope cannot do so arbitrarily in 1125. Um, but I, I think that the definition of organic development requires a book, ultimately. So I, I, I just said three notes, I think that would be a part of it. Um, but you're right. It's, it's a difficult definition, but who, okay. So uh, let's, let's, uh, this can be, this can be the kind of conclusion I would ask who defines what is organic, who defines what is anything in the church, right? Is it, yeah, I, I'd love, I'm, I, yeah, I know of Alquin Reed's book, but he's not the church, right? So who defines private theologians defining what things are or the church Meaning, you know, the AAS. It's got to well, be that's the a, AAS. That's a false dichotomy. It, it's not either or. I don't think it is. It's well, not I mean, either. It's well, got to well, be you're, theologians that comprise the magisterium, you know, the, the actaist apostolic ascetics, right? The church, the church is the answer. We're all Catholic here. So the church has to be, the church has the power to define tradition and scripture infallibly. And that's, we shouldn't have a hard time um, ceding that point to them that, that it's ultra, it's definitely ultra various to you and I or to Alquin Reed, right? It's, it's not, you know, it's literally just the church that, that is protected by the Holy spirit, the AAS that is protected by the Holy spirit. They define how to interpret this difficult passage of scripture, right? The Protestants started saying, well, this passage looks you know, this passage looks like it means this. It's like, okay, well, the church is the one that canonized the Bible. The church is the one that canonized its own tradition. The church has to have the final say. So I would say this is an, this is an issue ultimately beneath all the technical, quib, you know, good-natured technical quibbling that we've gone through. It's a nature of authority, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm simply saying you cannot... Uh make an either or between only the Pope or only the living Pope and uh, theologians as these are private individuals that we, we should just dismiss them. It's, it's the church as such is defining things from multiple sources of infallibility, the scripture, the tradition, the fathers, the scholastics, prior popes, prior magisterium, and the current magisterium all together. And so there needs to be room for the current magisterium to make, make an act or a judgment on something. And if it's not definitive, as it was in the case of 69, then priest Joseph Ratzikern can publicly critique the Pope and then he can make him a bishop and then he can further clarify something. And well, so, no, but the bishops, uh, this, this is what I was, this is just another area I'm a hundred percent certain about, right? The bishop, the ordinary, there's ordinary and extraordinary, papal magisterium, ordinary and extraordinary. Um, 
you know, uh, Episcopal magisterium. The only way a bishop adds to the magisterium is through a vote at an ecumenical council, right? Like at the end of the day, I'm asking, I mean, this is just what we need to do it with, with trads is not only, you know, be good natured like you are and I am at least with each other because uh, you're a nice guy. So it's easy <laughs> to do. But like we also just need maybe some analytic philosophers, you know, like hardcore the analytic philosophers, the nerdiest of academic philosophers to just kind of judge the debates and be like, OK, what's what's the first thing here? We need some more boundaries. It's like the first thing is for any true position. Right. You ought to be. And this is just I know people don't don't know about debate and forensics and things like that. But, you know, I was also a, a debate uh, uh, assistant debate coach when I was first teaching high school and, you know, law philosophy. This is what you do. So it's like, OK, any true position can identify its own falsification theory. How could I be wrong? Right. And there, there is a, a very clear way that that my point of view could be wrong. It doesn't mean that it is. I can just tell you exactly what it is. If this ultra vires argument is historically precedented and somewhere in the magisterium, it says ultra, you know, if uh, an extraordinary or ordinary act of the magisterium attempts to do something that's ultra vires, then there is kind of this emergency power that springs up like a Athena from Zeus's head and you can licitly disobey. Then that, that is, that is the falsification theory that by which my position would be wrong. But I think I would ask, okay, so like, what would it, what's the falsification theory for your point of view? So it's not just debating Mormonism with a Mormon or is, you know, with cults. What's your falsification theory? If at Vatican three, if the church, what I mean by the magisterium is a papal ex cathedra statement, right? Or, you know, a repeated teaching in encyclicals, right? So it's, it's a habitual teaching that's ordinary papal or basically an ecumenical council that's where the bishops really matter they can write what all they want they can publish whatever books they want and catholic publishers will publish them that's not part of the magisterium ecumenical council or ordinary papal power what if they do have a vatican three and that hopefully they do some good stuff and just get rid of this experiment of the novus ordo which they could do because it's a discipline he doesn't, they don't have to agree that it's, it was ultra virus. Hopefully they just do all the stuff that we would agree about. But what if they do say like, yeah, we're getting rid of the Novus Ordo, but it was never ultra virus in the first place. It was just a bad experiment. We had it for 60 years or 70 years, whenever Vatican three happens in my imagination. And they say, but it, it was not ultra virus to try this. Like that's, Boom, that's the ruling. Vatican III. Like, would you accept that? Oh, okay, it wasn't ultra virus. I mean, because that's the definitive act of the magisterium, right? Yeah, it, certainly if the magisterium definitively defines anything, I, I will accept it. Right. But then, okay, so there's ordin- but there are ordinary definitions that you're, you're waiting for an extraordinary one, or, or how does this work? Well, I, I would argue that the magist- you are restricting the magisterium to a post-Vatican one idea of the magisterium is restricted to the Pope and the bishops, especially the ones that are alive right now. But I would, I would put scripture and tradition first and the, the, the consensus of the fathers first before all those things and the prior popes and the project magisterium and all that built up. And especially the anathemas that I brought up in the debate, which are witnessing to the principle of what is magisterial authority. Now this is, this is why I brought up Dei Verbum and I, and I was imprecise and I concede that, but Dei Verbum 
shows the principle of tradition. Tradition is the authority and the magisterium is not above tradition, but interprets and passes down what came before. Uh, but what I attempted to do was to try to say that there even are these lowest ecclesiastical traditions, which the Pope is also bound to. Um, but I, I mean, I would say my falsification would be if, if the Pope were to define it or, or answer this dubium, um, or if the consensus of the scholastics had defined to the uh, above sententia communis um, that the Pope does have authority to uh, basically remove a right completely besides the, the sacrament. Um, if that could be shown, then I would be falsified. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think this boils down to authority and that's why I think it's a, a Vatican one thing. I I'm let me, let me say this once for all. I, I accept it. Uh, whatever it is, religious submission of mind and, and, and will, I accept Vatican one, but I have always been in, I mean, not always since I became, you know, a, a reverted serious minded Catholic studying in Rome. And I study again, Thomistic philosophy, metaphysics, not, not theology, but I just study it on the side to do shows. I've always been uncomfortable as long as I've cared with Vatican one more with the actual documents of Vatican one than Vatican two. So like mic drop, like people, I'm arguing this on the basis of my study and even my discomfiture with Vatican I. I was making the argument and I'm like, well, here's what it says. This is a plenary power. This happened on my show to a a live question about six months back. Plenary means absolute. So Vatican I makes me uncomfortable. We, We well know it makes you uncomfortable and your side of you know, that, that side of the debate with it. I, I, I think it should make anybody that's not in the standard sense of the term, you know, a, a Pope splainer kind of uncomfortable. And so we need, and, and there are some, there are some real ambiguities and there are a lot of really fishy intents behind Vatican II, but more the documents of Vatican I, more the intent of Vatican II. We need a Vatican III, but but the one problem that I maintain is this idea of authority. That you're, unlike Islam, unlike Protestantism, we're always kind of saying to them as Catholics, like, your guys' main problem, it's not sola scriptura, I say to my Protestant friend. Yeah, you need, you need tradition. But your main problem is authority. The church itself, the magisterium of the church, even though it's not infallible in all its acts, the magisterium has the sole authority to, to interpret tradition and scripture. And rejecting that is what makes Protestants Protestants. That's why they got rid of all the tradition, because there's this cross-fertilization between tradition and magisterium. But it's like, ultimately, the church will take... I mean, think of, think of the Pontifical Biblical Commission's um, stance with regard to certain passages of the Bible, Tim. It's like... Oh, this is a hard saying. I don't even just mean in the New Testament things Jesus said. The official church stance. If you're Catholic, you're with them on X. You know, passage thus and such means X. And if you're like, no, well, I don't like that. I think that's implausible. I reason, I reason with my private judgment that that's implausible. It's like, okay, so that's that's Protestant. That's what I'm suggesting about tradition. I do agree with you that we haven't had it like clarified absolutely definitively yet. Okay. So that, that's where, that's where we agree. But I think 
it, it, we've had it almost definitively clarified. I mean, I think, I think the Vatican one documents are so clear, you know, paragraphs two, eight, and nine, um, a pastor Eternus, it's like, wow, I mean, this is really clear language. It makes me uncomfortable, but I'm just an honest guy. This is what I do. I'm just an honest scholar. This is what I do for a living. You know, I've kind of been in, been in college <laughs> over a decade, you know, and this is what I do. I interpret texts, legal and, and philosophical, and now theological. So at the end of the day, it boils down to authority, and the church has the authority to make calls that make us uncomfortable sometimes. This is what we were trying to tell Luther, you know, 500 years ago. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think that you are, I think that you are excessive or anyone else who critiques trads when you compare them with Luther or you compare them like this. And the reason is because we are dealing with, especially like when you talk about, for example, the Dubia brothers, they are presenting to the Roman pontiff questions regarding magisterial acts that have been publicly and clearly defined already by John Paul II. And so absolutely it's, it's not, it's not like they're relying excessively on their private judgment. No, and the same is true. The same is true in these cases. This is, I mean, when I read Joseph Ratzinger and I read Benedict and I read these churchmen, they are articulating something based on the tradition and the universal magisterium, which I don't find to be excessively private judgment. They're not rebelling against the church and creating heretical doctrines like Luther. Uh, they are piously uh, attempting to critique something that is on, on the lower level of magisterial acts. So I think that there, there needs to be a spectrum, I think, uh, between Luther on the one hand and obeying 100% of everything that's not even infallible from the Pope on the other hand. There is a spectrum of that. And that's why I'm saying like the magisterium is also bigger than only the current Pope and only the current magisterial acts because the whole church as a body exists as the mystical body. There's another organic metaphor there. And there is a, a, a give and take that we've already seen in the past 60 years with the reversals of 1969 and the reversals of Comme la Poivre based on critiques, basically, of the magisterial acts. So well, yeah, I, but the, the, pro the problem with that, with that uh, likening is that, say, Burke and Bramuller, the two surviving Dubia brothers, they're appealing to ordinary and extraordinary magisterial documents and actions and they're saying, hey, we're, we're not we're not reasoning as part of the dubia aren't part of the magisterium. We're just pointing at the magisterium and we're saying, holy father, you did something that is it, with regard to to faith and morals. Right. You know, communion for the divorced and civilly remarried. That is utterly already shut down. That's a shut way. But these same the same two cardinals, notwithstanding Burke's. Uh, I don't want to say schizophrenia, but the tension in his position on this, the same two Cardinals are like Vatican two, Vatican one for all their troubles and ambiguities. These are real councils. And it's a, it also is a closed matter, right? I mean, like the Novus Ordo is a real thing. It's a valid thing. And to say that, you know, so, so really they're, they're standing in the shoes when they, you're, you're trying to make them into the Francis on this issue. And they're not the Francis on this issue. Like they, they're literally making appeals because both Burke and Brandmuller are, have, have the view of Lefebvre's position on, uh, on 
what what followed after Vatican II, that it's a schismatic position to hold. So they're literally the ones that are appealing to like, okay, Vatican I and Vatican II are definitive. They're 100% definitive teaching. Like, I mean, you you accept him, the, the Novus Ordo is, however bad it is, however much both of us dislike it, you accept that it's a, it's a, a valid mass, right? Like the validity yes. means it's it's real and it's not ultra virus by definition. Well, that, that's that would be the distinction that I, I was making. Uh, an inorganic development may not necessarily make an invalid sacrament. Then what? So what would? Yeah, the sacrament would still be valid, but I, I mean, like, I I just think I think people have I think this is one of these things terms that's been bandied about on the internet and now people no longer acknowledge a valid and like validity lyseity you know lyseity is basically nothing that's just whether or not it's allowed validity means ontologically whether it's a thing whether it's real you know i mean like you might not want you might not and i certainly don't i don't want to receive last rites from cardinal mccarrick Right. But if if, you know, I get hit by a bus and he's the only one around, it's a question of is this a presbyteral, you know, blessing? Is it unction or not? Uh, Like a layperson can't do that for me. A layman can't do that for me. So valid just means it's a real thing. So is the Novus Ordo a real mass? Yes. And of course, the dubia cardinals would never say no. They don't say no. They would reject that. So they're standing in the shoes of. They're, they're utterly self-consistent when they're like, well, this is about authority. The church already closed this matter. Vatican II did create Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the, you know, which itself created the Concilium, which created the Mass. We, none of us like the work product at all, but it's 100% a real thing. And it can't be, when we deal with what discipline is, a real thing and simultaneously ultra vires. That's just that's literally a line of reasoning that I, I don't think is breachable. What what do you say? I'll give you the last word because we, we got to get out of here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is just it goes into what is the definition of organic? And I've tried to define some aspects of it. <clears throat> but if the Pope were to impose a communion service, which only has the words of institution, that would be entirely inorganic in terms of a right, but it would be a valid sacrament. Uh, so I, I, I think, in my opinion, I think that this is, this is you reducing the mystery of the liturgy, which is an act of tradition, to only legal and metaphysical categories. And I think that's a part of it. But when you reduce it to that, then it's either ultra vires and invalid or not. I think, but that, what do you that mean legal and metaphysical categories? I'm just talking about the, the quiddity. What, what a thing is. I don't even know how we talk. If it's a mystery, then how are we even talking about it or reasoning about it or saying it's good or bad? Like, I don't know about ghosts, right? So I, I can't really, if I can't define something then I can't say when they, when they are and when they aren't in the room or when they are the conditions for the possibility of them. Like, so I, I the legal and metaphysical categories thing is, is losing me. I'm just saying, we have to know what something is before we can say, this is good, this is bad, this is licit, this is illicit, this is valid, this is, this is invalid. I'm just saying, do, I, I'm just asking far more basic. I, 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 think, I, think, um, I think you're overcomplicating by saying that uh, I'm, I'm trying to do it because I've, I've already told you, I don't understand the organic distinction. I still don't understand it. Uh, it seems really needlessly abstruse. I'm just asking, 
is the Novus Ordo Mass, however bad both of us find it, objectionable. Is it a real, is it a real liturgy, according to you? Yes, it's a real liturgy. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is. Um, I we, think so we've too. pretty much run up to these different distinctions of substance and organic, inorganic tradition. These are all the terms and concepts which we disagree may have been defined. Um, and we're drawing different conclusions based on defining these terms and principles differently. I don't think we disagree that much. I think if the Novus Ordo is just a real liturgy, for, forget whether it's a substance or not. I mean, it's definitely not. But that, that doesn't even need to enter into the equation. It's just my whole reasoning starts, okay, the Novus Ordo is a real liturgy. Obviously, it's, it's licit, right? Because the, the authority of the church explicitly made it licit. And licit doesn't really even matter anyway, but it's the figurehead. You know, the king tells you you can go. If he told you you can go on a red light, it's like, well, it was licit. Might not have been valid, but we agree it's valid. It's licit. So I, all we're left with that I think we agree about is, well, it's, it's really bad. It's really objectionable. We, we want to get away from this, right? We, it's really, really bad. And it does seem to be a, a, an atheist factory. Um, and it seems to be the apotheosis of the modernist infiltration in the church which predated vatican ii by a hundred years i think we agree about all that i'm just saying oh this is literally the literally my last question you have my 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 word on this one if it's valid if it's licit if the church has the authority to do it and they did what is left for us lay people you and i tim and tim or anyone else what is left for us to do that is like activist or like SJW besides just praying that they change it back. You see what I mean? That's all I'm doing. I'm yeah, just, I mean, I, I would, this shit, man. <laughs> yeah, I would just point you to the history of the traditionalist movement from Una Voce uh, to Lefebvre to Joseph. Yeah, I know it all. all I know it all who are, I yeah, I, I, but they, they did those things. They didn't just sit and pray and hope it changes. They actually articulated the principles of tradition and various factors and all these different things. And they got the magisterium to change and reverse course. And now prices put us back to where we were in 1969. So I, I, that was the crux of my argument is that we, we have done this before. We've already been through this, basically. We've articulated all these things and gotten to the point where we had some more in Pontificum. And that would be a rest restoration of organic development. So that, that would be what I would say is that we can just do the same thing we just did, what our, what our grandfathers did in 1969. Yeah. You mean... You mean the uh, Samorum Pontificum re uh, represents all of all of that uh, reconfigurement at post conciliar reconfigurement? That's what you mean? Well, yeah, I'm saying like 1969, all the trads didn't, or all the Catholics. I mean, because this is not even just trads, because the Ratzigarians are I wouldn't even call them trads per se, but um, those Catholics. Who cares? We really need to shed not... that term. It's it's super yeah. gay. The well, trad but, term but is lame. Whatever, whatever. I mean, the, the the Catholics did not just say, okay, the Pope said it in 69, and that's it. They actually tried to articulate and, and tried to change the magisterium publicly and to say so to, to get the magisterium to change course on this issue. And they did. Which issue? The, the... On the, the Latin mass and also the, the vernacular translation, which was the same principle of iconoclasm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like that. I'm just Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I think my wheels are spun, but I, I definitely like that. I mean, all I'm saying, I'm not saying people should sit on their hands 
as, as laymen, I'm just saying, and all I've ever said is, you know, if the Holy Spirit guides the authority of the church, the magisterium of the church in its interpretation of, of scripture and tradition, and we all pretty much agree, I don't really have any friends that disagree about this. I don't really know anyone or talk to anyone anymore that would defend on aesthetics, aesthetic grounds, the Novus Ordo. I mean, it's just like, oh, everyone's like, look, this is obvious. Well, I guess we need, part of it's like, this is my sort of thought. We need to stop conceiving of, uh, you know, liking the TLM as something for edgelords and just like, this is common sense. This, is, this doesn't make you a trad. I don't even, I don't know what that means. And it's just, honestly a really threadbare term it makes you like uh moderately observant you know and there's people people that really want to go back to like look can we just have that liturgy like you know we're calling the the number one liturgy we're supremacists of the tlm can we just go back to that like the people that ask that they're if you really are sincere in your belief, then you don't want to be an edge lord, right? You don't want to be in some vocal minority. You you just you want it to be the, the 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 preponderating point of view. Like, guys, aren't you are you serious? We're talking about Dies Irae, and the most beautiful like funerary songs ever, versus Go Make a Difference or something like that. Like, this doesn't require you know, deep reading and, and, you know, most of the Catholics online don't do deep reading on it anyway, but it doesn't require much besides eyes to see and ears to hear. Right. So can't we just, you know, hope and pray for someday a return to that. Sure. I mean, like, <laughs> like you said, we agree to a great degree and, and we, we definitely should be able to hash these things out. So uh, we at least support, just like I said with Lofton too. We both we both support the same action, the same solution to the the issue. So this is a, a, a deeper matter, but we both support the same thing in terms of the Latin Mass and and that type of thing. Yeah, I guess it just matters a lot who who gets in that that Petrine office, and that that's that's the crummy thing. That maybe that's that's one of the crummy aspects of Vatican One is it's like oh okay now we're rooting for Pope the way that we kind of root for a president, we're going to have crummy policy, crummy discipline for the next four years. Um, you know, when I read, you know, two, eight and nine and pastor Eternus is like, dang, this really politicizes the pontificate, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, and that, that's why, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're just, I'm just kind of repeating what I'm saying, but uh, yeah, I, I, I I see I see your point, and I guess I'm I'm saying that this is why we sh the Pope should not and cannot have the authority of his arbitrary will, as the, as the Catechism says, because otherwise the the faithful just go back and forth. Every new Pope gets a new liturgy and everything. So, but I, I mean I agree with you that the, as the substantial level of the issues, it does go to Vatican One. Yeah, and let's let's. Let's codify that 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 beast, you know, like just okay. So the Pope can't mess with the liturgy anymore, whatever. I'd be, I'd be totally cool with that. I can say it as a as a parting shot here. Like if that's man, I mean, if some if some ex cathedra statement ever comes out and one hasn't, or an ecumenical council ever comes out that says, "Sorry, Popes, you're just you know, 
some combination of what was it two two sixty or two fifty nine plus two sixty six you know Paul the six plus Francis like nope we're, you're not allowed to even dink with the the liturgy at all anymore you know uh, it's too 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 perilous and it's you know things can change around disciplinarily and so we're just we're just taking it out of your hands now we're making it ultra virus if they made that change I would be all for it so that's that's that's. I can I can salute with you if they ever if the church ever changes that aspect of discipline that it's it's ultra virus then I will I will cheer uh, with both hands. All right, man, I'll I'll be uh, cheering with you. Sounds good. We'll plan <laughs> on right, that. Well, thanks for coming on, Tim. Um, uh, you know, best of wishes for your book coming out in a couple of weeks, and uh, I'd love to have you back on the show sometime soon. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, and best of wishes for your book as well. Thanks for having cool. me, man. All right. Well, we'll, we'll catch up later uh, behind the scenes. And, and uh, God bless Meaning of Kath. God bless all of you. Des Volt, keep your head on a swivel. Stay tough. Stay tuned. Better things are coming, or they better be. Peace. God bless you all.